Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Welcome to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Okay, super inside joke. For a while, I was hooked on those Simpsons DVDs and the commentaries from cast and producers. And one of the showrunners for about two seasons was David Merkin. And he'd always have a really annoying welcome type tone. So there's an homage that probably only I and my older brother will get. This podcast, we are closing out the number ones from the year 2001, October through December. I was well into my junior year at this point, in three choirs at once. Call it me and the Mormons. Yes, I was in the minority. I was a non-LDS person in those choirs. Good times. But back to the music. In this episode, we will see plenty of three artists. Bob Dylan, Metallica, and R.E.M. They have two songs apiece in this run. But the first new number one of October, the week of October 13th, knocking off Elton John, it's The Cure and their signature classic, Just Like Heaven. Honestly, what can I say about this song that hasn't already been said? It's by far the Cure's signature track here in America, even though it didn't chart as high as Love Song or Friday I'm in Love. I do have a weakness for love songs from groups that you wouldn't expect it from, and certainly not the Cure, who for most of the career up to this point in 1987, did a lot of mope rock, what you would call it. And anything that was up-tempo was either frightened or ironic. And I have a number one in a few years by The Cure that fits that to a T. But nope, there's no hint of darkness and everything is sincere. Robert Smith allegedly wrote this song about a trip to the seaside with who would later be his wife. And he shows her how to do that trick, the one that makes her scream. Probably some seduction technique that worked. He kissed her face and kissed her neck. I mean, it's just right there in the lyrics. It's full of just infatuation first time you know you love somebody type stuff. And of course, musically, it matches the mood. It does that trick, not the one that makes me scream, but the one that tends to be catnip for me in songs, 
where it starts off with one instrument, then layers one by one in the next four beats. In this case, drum and bass, then a few different guitar parts overdubbed, and a little synth orchestra type thing, and that amazing descending riff that I could listen to all day. Just capturing spinning on that dizzy edge, being in love and just overcome by it. And then a few other tricks like piano dropping in in the instrumental part, playing a little melody, and that guitar line comes back in as the piano echoes, I'll run away with you. Oh, good stuff. And maybe the most famous part of the song is how he ends it with the title, Just Like Heaven, and then it comes to a stop. That's the only time the title shows up in the song, and perfect ending right there. Again, I'm not saying anything that you already know if you love the song, but still. One final anecdote, though. This was not the version of the song I was familiar with first. My older brother played a lot of Dinosaur Jr. from his room. They did a cover of the song that's a little more fast tempo, a little more raw, but still faithful to the original. And actually, Robert Smith himself gave his seal of approval to that cover. I'm trying to remember how I came across the Cure original. 2001 was MTV's 20th year anniversary, so maybe they were showing their most famous video clips of 20 years, and this one might have been on it. I don't know and I don't care. I love Just Like Heaven and so should you. After the one week in number one, The Cure gave up their spot to Sting. This has to be the dud of the week. It's his 1996 song, I'm So Happy I Can't Stop Crying. <laughs> she says, Are you okay? I was worried about you. Can you forgive me? I hope that you'll be happy. I'm so happy that I can't stop crying I'm so happy I'm laughing through my tears But Dan, I thought you said you didn't like country music. So what's this country music song doing at number one? Good question. This might have been something I saw on VH1, and I thought the title was kind of clever. So happy I can't stop crying. That ain't no Smokey Robinson right there. Yeah, this one did not age well with me. There's a podcast that I highly recommend called Beyond Yacht Rock. I think I've mentioned it before. Four comedians come up with their own terms for genres of music. They had one called Divorce Core, and I don't think this song was on their countdown, but it should have been. This is straight up divorce rock right here. I checked up on Sting's personal life. This is not autobiographical. He's been married to the same lady since 1992. So he's just putting on a character here. But the lyrics. For someone who once had lines like Scylla and Charybdis, Nabokov and Alabaster, none of that here. It's very on the nose. Sting's ex-wife says, oh, the kids are fine. Maybe he can come and babysit sometime. Then he talks to his lawyer about joint custody, legal separation. If I wanted exact, real stuff like that, I would listen to, hey, country music. So yeah, it's more than just the words that liken it to country. It's got steel guitar and very much structured like a country song. So much so that a year later, Toby Keith covered the song for an album of his. And actually, Sting offered to play bass guitar and duet with him on vocals. This was years before Toby Keith became really mainstream known, I think. Five years before putting a boot in our ass, that is. Yeah, as I said, this is the weak link of the week, unfortunately. There are much better songs before it and after it, as you'll soon find out. 
The next one week number one was a song that was barely number two behind Sting the previous week. It's Lenny Kravitz with one of his two decent songs, It Ain't Over Till It's Over. As you can tell from the intro, I don't have a lot of love for Lenny Kravitz. The first I'd heard of him was 1993's Are You Gonna Go My Way, which I still think is a banger. This particular one actually came two years earlier in 1991. Even though it was number two, I certainly don't remember hearing it at the time. It wasn't until around this time, 2001, when I think I heard it on our old friend's VH1. (laughs) This one is a perfectly good pastiche of Philly soul. Kind of like the kind of stuff Bruno Mars would be doing in the 2010s, where his pastiches are usually a lot more fun and memorable than his actual work. Although in the case of It Ain't Over Till It's Over, it's still unmistakably Lenny Kravitz, especially in that guitar chuck-chucking away in the verses. Lenny's in falsetto for most of the song, which makes that part where he goes into his head voice, his more commercial voice in the second verse, a little bit jarring, but nothing too big. Really, I find this one to be a good track. I like the strings and the progression it goes through in the chorus, and that little guitar part and the rising wordless vocals in the bridge. And hey, after that bridge, there's a sitar. And hey, at the very end, there's this horn section as he's repeating the chorus. Despite all those new elements being added throughout the song, it still feels lo-fi and not overproduced like most of Lenny Kravitz's later stuff would be. How fitting that the only two Lenny Kravitz songs I like are a ballad, this one, and a rocker, Are You Gonna Go My Way, both relatively early in his career. Everything else he's made in both ballads and rock songs has just been boring to me. I Can't Stand Fly Away, or his horrible remake of a song that I never really liked, Guess Who's American Woman. And I always found his later ballads like Stillness of Heart, and especially again, the same thing, just wallpaper, overproduced wallpaper at that. But since the early to mid-2000s, we haven't heard Boo from Lenny Kravitz, so we don't really have him to kick around. And I'll still put up It Ain't Over Till It's Over and Are You Gonna Go My Way as really good 90s songs. So at least he has that. Good for him, he gets a cookie. After one week, Lenny Kravitz bowed down to Bob Dylan. This was the first of six straight number ones, either by Bob Dylan, Metallica, or R.E.M., In this case, it's absolutely Sweet Marie, and one of us must know, parentheses sooner or later. Here's the former. Well, your railroad gate, you know I just can't jump it. 
sometimes it gets so hard, you see I'm just sitting here Beating on my trumpet With all these promises you left for me But where are you tonight, sweet Marie? Well, I waited for you when I was half sick Yes, I waited for you when you hated me Well, I waited for you inside of the frozen traffic as promised, this was the period that I finally listened to the full album Blonde on Blonde proper, whereas before, I had only known songs from his Greatest Hits or Greatest Hits Volume 2. So, songs like Greeny Day Women, 12 and 35, and Stuck Inside a Mobile, which I already talked about, already had their moment on the charts. These two tracks stuck out to me the most from when I heard the album in its entirety. It seems to me that this is a companion song to I Want You, Another one that already reached my charge from the greatest hits. Both are quite upbeat, even if the lyrics aren't quite so. In Absolutely Sweet Marie, Bob Dylan's just waiting for this woman, whether actual or symbolic. During this period, Bob Dylan included a lot of lady names in his songs, like Johanna, Queen Jane, Maggie, Ramona. And I think it's to be understood that most of them are not based on real people, more like mythology or a story. Whatever the case may be about Marie, we do know that she's sweet and she's absolute. And Bob Dylan's wondering where she is tonight. There's some sort of restless going on in the lyrics. Almost like stuck inside a mobile but not quite as frantic. He can't jump her railroad gate. He's waited for her in many instances when he was half sick, when he knew she hated him. Like I think I've said before, these are the hardest segments to record, the Bob Dylan ones as I'm not a huge lyricologist, but there are certain ones that I really like in this song. The most famous one probably, Six White Horses, that you did promise, were finally delivered down to the penitentiary and the immortal, but to live outside the law, you must be honest. I think each song on Blonde on Blonde has at least one iconic quote throughout the ages. And musically, it's got a lot going. Besides it being up-tempo, it's got a good chord progression, and just like Mobile, it's got a neat little organ part. I think in both cases, they were done by the venerable Al Cooper, but I can't confirm it at this time. I don't have as much to say about One of Us Must Know, as the lyrics are nowhere near as cryptic. It's just Bob Dylan's recollections of a failed relationship that sounds like it was his own doing. He's admitting that, yeah, he treated her so bad, but hey, she shouldn't take it so personal, right? Yeah, the main tone here is of bitterness. But once again, you got the music to fall back on if you don't really care for the lyrics. It's slower tempo than Marie, and really good use of the piano, especially in the chorus. And that organ's putting around, especially in the start of the song. I don't think I can do Blonde on Blonde enough justice talking about it. If you haven't listened to this album yet, then what the heck are you waiting for? And in a few more songs, I'll make the case for the album before it, Highway 61 Revisited. But until then... We're solidly in November now, the week of November 10th, 2001. The song that replaced Bob Dylan was Metallica, and another controversial number, The Memory Remains. Fortune's fame, mirror vain, gone insane, but the memory remains. 
I think we have another case where I can't be a fan of a certain band because I like a song that everyone else hates. It was like that with Dave Matthews' I Did It, R.E.M.'s Invitation of Life, and I think the biggest offender of all is this one, The Memory Remains. For those who need a refresher, Metallica was one of the biggest thrash metal bands in the 80s, and one of the first to cross over to the mainstream. This happened in 91 with their self-titled album and the big hit single Enter Sandman. So five years later they came out with Load, and though it sold well and had radio singles, a lot of the fans thought they sold the hell out. They cut their hair, they slowed down the tempo, had more bluesy guitar solos. I gotta wonder if the video for Until It Sleeps, the first single off Load, brought much of the criticism on. In that case, it might have been warranted. That was one terrible video. Song itself actually hit number three on my charts during the 9-11 week, so it has that unfortunate distinction. So, Load was 1996, and Reload was 1997. A lot of it was stuff that they were working on during Load, but didn't have time to finish. The Memory Remains was the first single from Reload, and I wonder if a lot of the backlash was due to Load already having a bad reputation, and oh great, more of the same. I will say that the subject matter is not super Metallica-like. It's about an actress from the glory days who was getting older and fading out of popular consciousness, supposedly inspired by the movie Sunset Boulevard that has a similar plot. And that explains the chorus, just the words fortune, fame, mirror, vain, gone insane, but the memory remains. I will grant that that's a bit of a cheesy opening, and that probably turned off a lot of Metallica fans from the first five seconds. And to add to the gimmicky feel of the song, they brought in someone to voice the actress in question, Marianne Faithful, the 1960s singer who was involved with the Rolling Stones, was the inspiration for Wild Horses, and whose voice had been long ravaged by too much drug use. Instead of me trying and failing to replicate her voice, Here's how it sounds. So yeah, The Memory Remains is definitely a confusing song, somewhat of an anomaly in Metallica's career. But dang it, I like it. If that means I need to get my Metallica fan card revoked, so be it. And if you want to know my thoughts on Load and Reload, both of those albums had way, 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 way too much fat to be trimmed. They went on way too long. Next up at number one, we finally have a song number one for more than a week. In this case, two. It's the return of R.E.M. with Driver 8.
It must be said at this point, I wasn't listening to the R.E.M. albums yet. I was just cherry-picking the ones I'd heard about from review sites and the quote-unquote radio singles from the 80s. Driver 8 comes from R.E.M.'s third album, Fables of the Reconstruction, or Reconstruction of the Fables, depending on what your CD says. This is the only song from that album that made number one, so I'll talk about it a little bit. Their first two albums, Murmur and Reckoning, were Stone Cold Classics. This one from 1985, not so much. They recorded it in England with a brand new producer, and I gotta wonder if they were jet-lagged the whole time. A lot of this album is somewhat lethargic sounding, moody, not a whole lot to latch on to. Driver 8 was one of the singles, and it's one of only two songs that's more than mid-tempo. As I said when I was talking about Imitation of Life, I had heard at the time that Peter Buck had unintentionally nicked the chord progression of Driver 8 for that particular song. So this was one of the first songs I really seeked out from R.E.M. The train motif is really represented well in the driving tempo. Definitely makes you think of being on a train ride. Maybe because I've been watching a lot of train ride YouTube videos during this quarantine. It's something that calms me down, I think. And in typical Michael Stipe form, the lyrics are mostly impressionistic, observing stuff from the train, I'm guessing. Some of it kind of childlike. One of my favorite lines has always been, the power lines have floaters so the airplanes won't get snagged. It seems like something a little kid would ask his mother, why this has that. It's also got a pretty cool bridge, way to shield the hated heat, way to put myself, my children to sleep, which goes back to my relaxing train ride exercise I was talking about earlier. And a harmonica that totally sounds like a train whistle. Should have known that before I read song facts. It loses a few points by not having that great of a chorus. And that was a big difference between a lot of the songs on Fables and the songs from the two prior albums. They might be a little bit mumbling the verses, but the chorus explodes with the hook to really give you something to remember. This one, he just repeats how the first verse ends. The train conductor says, take a break, driver eight. Of course, got some nice looping vocals from Mike Mills, as he often does. And maybe that's just nitpicking. It's still classic early R.E.M. And there'll be another even more classic number just around the corner. The week ending December 1st, Metallica found themselves back on top, this time with a track from S&M, No Leaf Clover. This one I'm not going to play a sample of, because I don't have that much to say about it. It came from their 1999 release, S&M, a.k.a. Symphony and Metallica. It was a live recording with the band and the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. All but two of the songs were old Metallica songs. A lot of it coming from their last two albums, Load and Reload. As you could imagine, some songs worked just fine with that orchestra, and others did not. I kind of liked how they did The Thing That Should Not Be of Wolf and Man and Hero for the Day. But on the other hand, I really didn't like the versions of Fuel, Master of Puppets, and certainly not The Memory Remains. All the stuff you thought was cheesy from that song is taken to 11 on that one. Getting the crowd to sing The Memory Remains just sounds cheesy on record. Same with all the audience parts in Master of Puppets. This particular track, No Leaf Clover, was one of two new songs for S&M, and there's really no reason to play a sample. It starts with the orchestra playing something that sounds like Paradise City by Guns N' Roses. Then it goes on to a very Dream On-like section, which later becomes the chorus. And when the band comes in, it's basically a rewrite of The Memory Remains. I mean, it's okay, but not a whole lot to say about it. I spend most of the time just talking about S&M, the album itself, rather than No Leaf Clover. 
And that kind of says it all. Moving on. Once again, along comes R.E.M. to knock Metallica off number one. This time, it's with their first album classic, Radio Free Europe. Again, at this point, I was only looking for the most famous R.E.M. songs of the 80s, not their albums. But Radio Free Europe comes from my favorite R.E.M. album of them all, 1983's Murmur. I'll revisit Murmur in three or four years' time when a couple more songs from that album hit number one, after I gave the album a full proper listen. For now, I'll just stick to the song itself. It was the first song and first single off Murmur, and it's both emblematic and not emblematic of the rest of the album. How do I explain? It establishes the murmur formula, where each verse has four measures that sound exactly the same, usually no different chord progression within, same vocal melody, and most indecipherable lyrics courtesy of Michael Stipe and his murmuring, mumbling style. Stipe later admitted that you can't tell what he's saying in the verses because he hadn't really worked out what the words were going to be, but the song title and the first line of the first verse give some sort of context. Radio Free Europe itself is a United States government-funded organization that broadcasts and report news to other countries in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. It was started in the late 1940s as sort of an anti-communist station, promoting democracy and freedom and other wonderful American qualities to those other countries. Those undecipherable lyrics are actually Michael Stipe saying that this could easily cross over to propaganda, pro-American stuff and the listener has to decide for himself if radio's gonna stay. That's the first line. Back to the murmur structure, it has a bridge-slash-pre-chorus that sets out to the wonderful chorus calling out in the transit. It sounds like Stipe is proclaiming it through a megaphone. I can easily see him doing that in live concerts. And as with the rest of Murmur, the instrumentation is pretty sparse. In this case, we got a Ramones-level bass line and a couple of guitar flourishes, especially in the verses and pre-chorus. But where it differs from the rest of the album are the drums are mixed a little bit higher than usual. I heard people almost call it a disco-type beat, maybe to enhance the single-worthiness for rock radio. I don't know. Long story short, I love, love, love this song. I don't know if I'd put it at number one of my favorite song in the album because there's so many contenders. But it's a great intro. Starts off one of my all-time favorite albums with a bang. In four years, we'll have another number one from that album, so you'll hear me wax poetic about it some more. Looking forward to it. In a nice bout of symmetry that I totally didn't plan out ahead of time, Bob Dylan returns to the number one spot for one week with two classics from Highway 61 Revisited, the title track and Queen Jane Approximately. (laughs) 
kill me a son Ape said, man, you must be putting me on God said, no Ape said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Ape But the next time you see me coming You better run Well, Ape said, where do you want this killing done? God said, hold on Highway 61 Same story here as with Absolutely Sweet Marie. This was when I finally listened to the full album of Highway 61 Revisited, and songs like Like a Rolling Stone and Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues have already hit number one on my charts, so there is room for a couple others. And these were my two chosen tracks. With the title track, you could say that it's a throwback to the previous album, Bringing It All Back Home, where Bob Dylan first introduced his sort of garage rock idiom to the folk thing he already had. This one is suitably garage rocky and mostly a blues pattern, but a little more sophisticated this time around. This is a great example of Bob Dylan's writing where he has a different scenario each verse and the chorus is the resolution. In this case, the chorus is go down to Highway 61. According to the internets, there actually is a Highway 61 in Bob Dylan's home state of Minnesota, close to Duluth. A couple of the verses are biblically inspired, especially the first verse with God said to Abraham, kill me a son. That was based on a parable in Genesis 22. I like that exchange that he wrote between God and Abraham. A bit of a casual conversation between the two. God said no, Abe said what? Time was, I would liken that to the famous Bill Cosby skit with Noah building the ark. But damn it all to hell, Bill Cosby had to be Bill Cosby. So, cancelled. He introduces a new character each verse. Georgia Sam, Mac the Finger, the fifth daughter of the seventh son evidently based on reading from the Old Testament, Ezekiel. It's peak Bob Dylan lyricism. And of course, the rest of the music follows suit. There's not really a guitar riff per se, but the slide guitar just accents a whole lot of the verses. It is a blues pattern, but probably my favorite part of the song musically is how in each verse before the last stanza where Highway 61 is a resolution, there's a pause in the vocals. Two bars are just instrumental. It's a really cool musical trick because it comes in a part in each verse where the protagonist or whoever is waiting for the other person to make the decision or say what needs to be done. That, to me, makes the song good as it is. And that funny little siren whistle you hear at the start and throughout. According to the internets, that was brought in by Al Cooper, apparently to police the sessions. The rule was, if someone started doing drugs, he would go into a corner and blow on that whistle. I guess to go into timeout, I don't know. It was in a Rolling Stone article, so take that what you will. A few words on Queen Jane approximately. It is very similar to Rolling Stone in sound, but Bob Dylan's a lot more gentle in this song. It's almost as if Queen Jane's the same person as Miss Lonely from Like a Rolling Stone. And in each verse, Bob Dylan talks about what might happen. If this happens, then won't you come see me, Queen Jane? No official word on the identity of Queen Jane. The most speculated one was his girlfriend at the time, Joan Baez. At the time, their relationship was falling apart, and Bob Dylan was leaving her world for a new rock world. Musically, the best part of the song is the piano. It exudes warmth and gentleness, as in the vocals. And this is where I say, if you haven't heard Highway 61 Revisited, what the heck are you doing, man? Listen to that, preferably before Blonde on Blonde, to keep it in chronological order of Bob Dylan's evolution. And the final number one of 2001 lasted two weeks starting the week ending December 22nd. It's that stone-cold 80s classic, 
Tempted by Squeeze. I'm sure that's one of the longer samples I provide from a song, but I had to share all of it. It's so good. I love this song, man. Much like the other 80 songs that made number one this year, I came to find out about this one on that deep cut 80s radio station. Up to this point, I'd only known Squeeze for their 1987 hit single Hourglass, one of their only top 40 hits here in America, only on account of that video they would show on Big 80s quite a bit. One of those silly optical illusion videos. It was past their peak, not representative of what they do best. Squeeze's peak period was from 1979 to 1982, when they started off as more of a new wave group, then morphed more into pleasant pop rock. The two main guys in Squeeze are lyricist Chris Difford and music writer Glenn Tilbrook. Tilbrook sung most of the songs because he had a more commercial voice, whereas Chris Difford's was a pretty monotone, gravelly moan. However, it's neither of those guys that you hear singing lead on this one. It's keyboardist Paul Carrick, the Trent Dilfer of music. As in, both of them were in a lot of groups over their years and contributed quite a bit to them in their short time with the group, or football team, if we're talking about Trent Dilfer. Paul Carrick was only on the one Squeeze album that this came from, 1981's East Side Story. He had replaced Jules Holland, who went on to do all kinds of other stuff including a long-running music TV show that he still has in the UK. He didn't have a hand in writing Tempted. It was the usual different Tilbrook team. But this song benefited greatly from his vocals, which was the only song on this album where he sang, for the record. To continue the football analogy, he might not be like Trent Dilfer in this case. It's kind of like, say, the New England Patriots signing Randy Moss to a one-year deal, making an already great team, putting them over the top because this song is a bit more soulful than Squeeze usually allow themselves to be. And though when I saw Squeeze live in 2016, Tilbrook sung lead vocals, he still couldn't quite match the power of Paul Carrick. He does show up in the second verse, here. That's his voice in the first part of the verse. And the other guy? My man Elvis Costello, who will be making his maiden voyage number one next episode. He was the producer of East Side Story, 
And I guess he couldn't help chip in to the vocals here. And hey, what of Tempted itself? Much like the vast majority of Squeeze's work at the time, it's about a relationship that's just not working out. In this case, the guy is thinking about cheating on a significant other, with that wonderful chorus tempted by the fruit of another, against that descending piano chord progression, really conveys that sinking feeling of guilt and, holy crap, I'm going to hell. And the verses are no slouch either, talking about the process of just getting dressed and looking in the mirror, walking out his door, probably to see that fruit of another. And those verses employ a trope that I can't get enough of, the minor key, major key going back and forth between the two. I'm guessing to illustrate the confusion and internal struggle going on inside his head. What else can I say? It's Squeeze's best song, even if it isn't quite representative of the rest of their work. And rightfully, it has gone down as Squeeze's signature song. Although, shockingly, it missed the top 40 in both UK and America when it came out. Coming really close, 41 in UK, 49 in America, but not quite. Shame on you, record buyers. Shame on you. Oh well. And some honorable mentions to go out this episode. The second week of I Want Love's number one reign, parked at number two was Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, a stone-cold classic that might have also helped me in the post-9-11 world. Another solid number two song that could have been number one another week was The Rolling Stones' Tumbling Dice and Happy, both from Exile on Main Street, couldn't quite beat out Driver 8 in November. Speaking of R.E.M., both weeks attempted was number one in December, R.E.M. were right behind with South Central Rain and Don't Go Back to Rockville. South Central Rain was one that I talked about in a prior episode of 30 Day Song Challenge. A notable day in this time period was November 29th, when George Harrison passed away of lung cancer at the age of 58. For much of November, his version of Absolutely Sweet Marie from the 30th anniversary Bob Dylan concert was on the charts. It peaked at number 4 a few weeks before his death, but was still around when he died. But my pick of song to go out on is one that peaked at number 6 in October. It's Oh Superman by Laurie Anderson, part of her spoken word concept album, Big Science. It was another one I found out about in some 20-year anniversary retrospective of MTV. Weird-ass video, and it made number 2 in the UK, which tickles me to no end. And that will wrap up the year 2001. We'll be charging full speed ahead to 2002 next week, and there's lots I'm looking forward to talking about. Until next time, thank you as always for listening. We'll see you next time on Music Is My Radar. Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.